Everything I've said is true. It's real. Dinosaur fossils? I'll have to put those here to test our faith. That damn lie. I, I saw them on my own eye. Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane. This is mass madness, you maniac. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Rise of the Expert. This is part four going along with Dwayne's series of articles that he's put out. And uh, he just released the fourth one. And that's uh, Christian Dispensationalism and the Social Gospel. And we're going to really dig in. I know last week we mentioned getting into law, but we're not there quite yet. We will be there very soon. Yeah. Um, but we need to do this first. And this is going to be uh, a juicy one. Uh, gonna dig into basically the roots of fundamentalist Christian is Christian uh, Christianity in this country. Yep, and a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Dwayne, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's Just good to working hear. our butts off over here, trying to get things done. And you know how it is. You're a busy guy too, but uh, absolutely. A couple minutes late today, but we're good. We're here. So yeah, not too bad. And are we you live? just we are we are live. Nice. Um and you just recently did uh, an epic like 3 hour podcast with uh the uh, missing link, correct? Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, we just Yeah, and so we just basically um caught everybody up all of his viewers, his listeners, mm-hmm. his crowd. We just got them all sort of caught up on what you and I've been going through. So we just kind of covered the first three articles Excellent. and then we rebooked for another month from now so we should be able to get through four weeks here and that will include the probably a two-parter on sociological jurisprudence and then it lines up right so i should be able to do that again with him on the missing link and yeah that was really a great time i like being on there i love having people ask questions and participating so Heck yeah, man. And that's what we hope for today as well. So Mm -hmm. um, I see we got a couple people watching right now. Thank you for being here. And um, yeah, let's let's dig right in, Dwayne. We uh, Mm -hmm. we left off with um, well, we've set quite a bit of foundational uh, information up for everybody. And we're really digging into how Brandeis has single handedly like puppeteered <laughs> this entire movement, this entire situation. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. He's really central in, in all of this. And so when I started writing this months and months ago, and we were supposed to do a rise of the expert, you can, you can see now why it took so long is because every time I opened a door, there was all kinds of information mm-hmm. that was pertinent to the whole story. And it just got, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so today will be a great example of, you know, me having to cut off this research because there is so much here when it comes to Christian dispensationalism, Mm -hmm. Brandeis' involvement in this evangelization of uh, end times and this, you know, fomenting of fear. And so somewhere along the way, I I want to talk about that. So if anybody's got any questions about that or any comments about how most narratives that we see out there are fear-based and it's a parallel, whether we're talking Christianity or conspiracy theorism, mm-hmm. you know, 
it seems to be a common theme throughout even alternative media and independent media. So I'm hoping now we're going to, through this, we're going to start making connections between socialism and this Christian dispensationalism. It's really, it's really Christian social activism is what mm -hmm. they're doing. And they're, they're, they're through their works. They are actually attempting to bring heaven on earth. So it's very similar to, you know, other patterns that we're seeing coming out of other different groups. And what, what's interesting about this is these guys are all bachelor of arts, master of arts too. So they got the same education, except they've got PhDs in divinity. So they're, they're all based out of Princeton and Harvard and all of these same places, except they're uh, religious hmm. and they're coming from coming at this from a religious aspect. So, there's a couple different groups that we're going to get into. And so we start with William Eugene Blackstone. He is really considered the father of Zionism because of his 1891 Blackstone petition. And so it, it antedates Theodore Herzl, his Der Judenstadt, you know, and uh, his involvement with Zionism. So mm -hmm. really what we see is that Christian dispensationalists are the or the the founders of Zionism, and Very so interesting. The one of the connections that we're going to make here is between Christianity and socialism, and when you think about it, it's very similar in their methods and their goals, right? To take care of you know equity, uh, equality of outcome, right? Taking care of the poor and needy. These are very similar ideas. These are you know, and it, so. How, how different is it, you know, that, you know, the religious type uh, promising, you know, heaven on earth or the socialists promising utopian um, society. And, mm -hmm. and it all lines up as you see. So this quote is kind of just sort of orientating us correctly. Socialism offered not only a radical critique of American political and economic institutions, it also offered this the seal symbols and sense of participation in a world transforming cause often associated with Christianity itself. Hmm. Okay. And so that's actually identifying the social gospel movement, which is the second group of people that we're going to get into, but they're all related underneath Christian fundamentalism. Okay. So this is all a, a giant movement. Um, and it's all concerned with, guess what capital and labor and right. all of the issues that are coming out of industrialization okay just like the socialists are looking at the world these guys are looking at the world the same so blackstone was a very well-known evangelical minister of his day considered today a founder of dispensationalism along with john nelson darby and the plymouth brethren in the mid-1800s other key names in the foundation of dispensationalism in, in America are James Inglis, James Hall Brooks, C.I. Schofield, and Dwight L. Moody. Christian dispensationalists interpret the Bible literally, believing in an approaching cataclysmic event as described in the book of Revelations. And that's the defining characteristic here. Yes. You know, the, this is what they're yep. mainly pushing. This is the, the, the thing we're highlighting most, right, Dwayne? Yep. That they're and, pushing the end times. Yep. And support for Israel. That is actually <laughs> yes. the, the predominant uh, underlying current in all of it. 
I would say one along with the other, you know, like um, this, uh, as long as this, in a a way, it was like, this is a, you know, you have, this is something that God wants and needs in order for this to to all come to fruition. Yep. So from out of this group is where they popularized the fear of the future found in the biblical stories of the tribulation, the rapture, millennialism otherwise known as the second coming of Christ. It's dispensationalism is a storyline. It's uh, telling history through a storyline, a, a, a sequential time thing that we'll get into. So the movement has also greatly assisted in the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine and that it is primarily centered around the return of God's chosen people to Israel. This is one of the messages I'm reading in all of these guys' literature. This is really what they're all they're talking about primarily. So these concepts, much to our surprise, weren't established tens of thousands of years ago, but a little more than 100 years before I was born. So these men this were so weird <clears throat> to right? think that Christian, it's that that recent, um, th- at least these interpretations of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you think that this is all so old, but it's like peer review and vaccines and all of these things created in the 60s. We thought it was right. like 600 years old. No, no, let me ask. Newly a, established. I need to ask a dumb question here. Um, sure. Actually, you know what? I forgot my question, so I'll hold off on it for now. But it, it will be coming okay. about this. Oh, yeah, I found it again. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about atheism in the past here, like um, the idea of a secular people and secular academics being um, really central to the plot that we've been uncovering. Yep. But it seems that this is a totally opposing angle and i'm just wondering um is this uh like a dialectic of sorts is it just like a you know what is it you mean mean secular versus religious well right i mean that's kind of what i'm getting at because like we have a lot of the people that we've been covering previously are jewish but also secular and not necessarily Jewish yeah. by faith, more Jewish by whatever you want to call it. But okay. um, but like we're talking about academics, we're talking about um, I don't know, maybe I have it wrong, but yeah. I was I feel well, like we've been seeing a lot of like secular people involved in this, and now we're seeing the opposite, which is yeah. it's good that we're seeing the full spectrum of who it is, and we're not just being biased and saying, oh, it's all these atheist Satanists, and you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, it's a journey to the truth, so we don't really care what their, eth- uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds are. We ju- we're just more concerned with their level of complicity, you know, and their involvement, and whether they're guilty of doing things that are harmful to humanity, and you know. Oh, absolutely. This, uh, and you've, you you're know, doing a fantastic job of uncovering that that particular yeah. angle. I was just curious merely about the um, the very specific uh, difference between uh, secular and right. faith-based thinking in yep. how it affects society and all, all blah, okay. blah, blah. And yep. the fact that we have both sets of characters yes. involved is interesting so, to me. That's all. Right. So then let's remember that their game plan is to infiltrate all aspects of society. And one of those major forms, when you talk about the moorings and the, the traditions and values that we have, we all know that religion is either number one or two, mm-hmm. right? As far as having us cling to values and, and to keep us on the straight and narrow, religion is one of those things that they recognize they had to remove us from to get us to go 
in a in another direction, right? This is progressivism. They're always going to be moving moving us forward. And just like they looked at the U.S. Constitution as an obstacle, I think that they were looking at the Bible as a, a, an obstacle too. Yeah, and it so seems that way. This, this is how they infiltrated religion. That's what we're going to show here. Right. And so say, it's very similar. We have a group of intelligent creatives, a group of people with some technology, and then they're being influenced and, you know, coerced and directed, really. Right. So you'll see a lot of similarities, and it's really bringing them together in the middle rather than being opposed. Gotcha. Okay. So Dwight Lyman Moody, he's like, He's like the most popular evangelical of the day, but he's considered the predecessor to televangelism. So like Billy Graham, Jimmy Swagger, Jerry Falwell, Jim Baker, and Joel Osteen, Oral Roberts, they all they all push the same narrative. They're all supporting Israel, like we said, and pushing end time narrative. Mm -hmm. This is really, I think, how they make money, but you can see that this is going on still to this day because these are guys are connected through what is called the gap uh the gap theory and we'll get into that but there's connections through their belief systems and the different denominations and so you start to see similar groups of people believing in similar things okay and so out of this dwight lyman moody not only comes the televangelism that we see still today so prominent but the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago is the inspired model for most of all of the Bible colleges that spread around America at that time, forming a network and helping propagate faith in a literal translation of the Bible. Hmm. So these it's men so all real. having these men all having one thing in common, even today, in that they all preach end times through a literal translation of the Bible and support the followers of Judaism as God's chosen people and support emphatically their right to a homeland in Palestine. So John Nelson Darby, he's considered the father of dispensationalism. He's born about 40 years before everybody. Um, and futurism as well and pre-millennial tribulation rapture. So this is all underneath the heading of dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. uh, Darby was a pioneer within the Plymouth Brethren and founder of the Exclusive Brethren. This is just another group of people that comes from Ireland. Um, so very religious these guys are mostly presbyterian or baptist too you'll start to see that they come from there evangelical right but underneath an evangelical you can you can have baptism or oh yeah presbyterian right? it's more about the spreading of the word of god but when you hear those kinds of phrases that is somebody under the spell of dispensationalism Right. I mean, the a literal definition is pretty close, just like this, like a historical progress, progression revealed yes. in the Bible, basically. Yep. Good use of the word progression, too, because this is how they use it. Ah, there we go. Yep. So uh, Darby promoted solo, sola scriptura, common to nearly all Protestant de denominations, believing the word of the Bible or the word of God as the one true infallible authority. So Darby's eschatology was then popularized through the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. 
today. Thanks to Darby and CI Schofield, we have well over 100 million American Christians interpreting the Bible literally, fearing the future, and believing it. it's all in God's hands. Now, I would say it's well more than 100 million at this point around the world of people that believe in end times, and it's, you don't even have to be Christian anymore to believe that. No, I was just actually thinking while you're talking about this that, you know, Madame Blavatsky and theosophy yes. and spiritualism was going on at this exact same time. So it's yep. like two sides to the same coin because, of mm -hmm. course, they don't twist it the same way Christianity or Judaism does, but it's still, I mean, we could go on. It's a totally different thread about how mm -hmm. the New Age has been doing the same exact thing right. and just leading yeah. the opposite flock towards this same center. Yep. Seemingly disparate groups of people are all coordinated doing the same things, saying the same things, right? Mm -hmm. Inspired mm -hmm. by the same things. So James H. Brooks studied briefly at the Princeton Seminary before moving to Miami University at Oxford, Ohio. He was the driving force behind the Niagara Bible conferences that introduced Protestants from all over the all over the world, fundamental ideas of dispensationalism, including the restoration of Israel and a distinction between the saved and the damned. <laughs> so when you hear people say, you, you better get with the Bible or you're not going to be saved, that is a literal translation of the Bible. So Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield is, is pretty famous today because he put out his own uh, reference Bible. So he right. was a Southern Presbyterian and very influential author of the first modern Bible with chain references is what they call it. So this is the first Bible since uh, the, there was one in the 1500s before the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. That was the only other one that sort of had chain references, but the Schofield reference or study Bible uh, has chain references. So it's like a scientific approach to the, the story of God. So here we're starting to see the scientific expert oh, yeah. getting involved in religion. So published oh. in 1909, the same year. Okay, this is very interesting to note, too, that the Schofield Bible comes out in the exact same year, Herbert Crowley's Promise of American Life. So now here's a great opportunity to look at the two different groups here we've been talking about, the secular and the religious. Yeah. And basically it's the same idea coming out of here. The Schofield Reference Bible targeted at Christians saying, here's the life that you should be leading, and here's how you should be uh, interpreting the Bible and living uh, your life through God. And then Herbert Crowley's Promise of American Life is very much similar to the uh, message to the secular. Here's a new way of uh, life that we're going to impose. And this is a progressive message because Herbert Crowley's a, a founding father and inspiration to Theodore Roosevelt. This book, Promise of American Life, inspires Theodore Roosevelt to create the Bull Moose Party, the first progressive party. So same year. It's all tied together. It is very tied together. So it was the first definitive scientific interpretation of the Word of God, complete with commentary and explanatory notes written in the margins by <laughs> Schofield and his team of consulting editors. And I've left that's crazy. There. You literally have the gatekeepers just putting notes in the fucking yeah. sidelines. That's just and so that's awesome. That's so easy. My wife, my wife got me the Schofield Bible. It's like the hundred year anniversary. And we're mm. gonna recite some of it because it's incredible when you start to understand how it happened, but it's right here. So nearing the end of the show, 
I'd like to go through that and just read some of it. Absolutely. Yeah, we can definitely do that. I've never this Bible recited from blows the Bible me away in my life. It's so crazy how you mentioned the scientific expert here in this context. Yeah, I love how this, this is, is coming together because yeah. it took my mind as far away, but on point as like looking at all the fantastical sci-fi that has always been in our lives. Now there has to be like perfect scientific explanations for how rational all of it is in all the marvel movies and the dc movies right. all of our superheroes now have to have scientific explanations for right. why they are the way they are yeah. everything is being brought that direction yeah. it's crazy yeah. and so just like the labor union in part two is the scientific expert entering wedge between our labor here it is between our source again what you know yeah. our source of spirituality yeah like we can explain this for you don't you worry you hold that thought we got you covered right so uh in 1917 it was revised by schofield in an attempt to attribute exact dates to biblical verse so you know i'll hold my personal views <laughs> you can imagine what they would be me being a forensic historian and and you know always on the search for truth and you know um objective truth so this ed edition of the bible had its origin in the increasing conviction of the editor through 30 years of study and use of the scriptures as pastor teacher writer and lecturer upon biblical themes that all of the many excellent useful editions of the word of god left much to be desired so that's schofield talking in the introduction to the schofield bible and he's saying that, you know, all of the, there's so many different stories about um, not just creation, but the, you know, the story of God, that this is what has inspired him to create a version with um, footnotes, citations. Mm. So Schofield's version containing the entire text of the King James version. So they took the text out of the King James version and then just started putting his own interpretations in there in the margins. Okay. This is one mm -hmm. thing I had to figure out. I was like, is this a total retelling of everything? But no, they've just taken the text from King James version, put it in there and then added um, all kinds of notes, man. Actually there's more notes per page than there are biblical verse. Man, I'd be really interested in the, the aiming and direction of those notes and where yeah, well, we're going to talk the reader. about that because it's very subtle and it's in the words that they change. It's like mm -hmm. one word changes everything. So, um, where was I? Yeah. Originally published in 1611 was the King James version. It becomes the modern day theological entering wedge acting as the ultimate authority, impressing both a sense of fear of the future and a state of helplessness into its hundreds of millions of followers. Schofield, an early proponent of gap theory and progressive creationism. Something I just discovered today, I think, progressive creationism. That's a the weird one. In a, in a gradual unfolding of life is determined by God. A recognition of intelligent design and gap theory, a new beginning put between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Gap theory, as advocated by Schofield, expands biblical history to millions of years rather than the previously taught thousands of years. A theistic evolution is the word that they use, opening the door to 
Darwinism. Hmm. So when you open the Bible, the first sentence If you just give me a moment here, I'm going to read it. Because sure. It makes, we're just going to yeah. keep people going here. No, this is important. I think reading from the source is very important. The audience yeah, thinks and he so actually, too. He talks about the Pentateuch. Do you know what that is? I've heard that word. I think we talked about it in the chat, you, me, and Andy. But shout out to Andy. He couldn't be here this week. Hopefully yeah. he gets to listen in a little bit. By the way, and shout out to everybody who's watching right now. Appreciate you being here. Uh, Mario Garza from Symbolic Studies. What's up, brother? Nice. Thanks for being here. So the, the Pentateuch is actually the Talmud. Huh. And so Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, that's it. Mm -hmm. It does say here, earth made waste and empty by judgment. So with a slight alteration of the wording here, we see that earth made waste and empty by judgment. So what they've done here is created two, um, two cataclysms, two judgment days. And in between... Um, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So the very first two sentences of the Bible, they input their entering wedge idea of, you know, two judgment days. Mm -hmm. And so I wish I could show this to you. I wanted to include it in, in the um, article, but it just, I ran out of time and there's, you know, you can't put everything in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so after Genesis verse 2 and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of god moved upon the face of the waters we see written the new beginning the first day light diffused so they've gone from a judgment day from genesis 1 1 to 1 2 but in between they've infused a, a another judgment day this is where apparently satan the devil um appears so that's the extent to my knowledge of this situation i was diving into it today and learning about gap theory so i could properly explain it to mm -hmm. a point now so all the the general consensus or the the summation here is that they extended the time period from you know, we all know that Christians believe that the world's only 10,000 years old. Well, mm -hmm. by, by inputting a second judgment day, they actually were allowed then to expand the whole timeline into millions of years. And what this is, is opening the door to the idea of evolution and Darwinism. So they've just kind of uh, stepped a half step or one step towards Darwinism by even accepting the idea of evolution. Now, evolution to them and to Schofield meant that uh, growth and evolution in our human uh, knowledge happened in quick spurts rather than over a, a long, slow period like Darwinism. Mm -hmm. But they still are uh, talking about evolution as opposed to uh, let there be light. Right. So probably a long and convoluted explanation no and it's something that we kind of have to 
slowly unravel through more examples. You know what I mean? As we right. as we get further into this, because it yeah. is so a, just, it's a tricky. It's this is a very subversive thing that they've done, and it yeah. tricked millions of people. So it's not you're not no one's going to get it on the first try here. I mm -hmm. mean, when you were when you were uncovering this, and you were telling me and Andy about it when we were in our private chats. You know, you were like <laughs> Newton with like an apple falling on his head or something. Like you were losing your shit about the Schofield Bible when when it first hit you. You mm -hmm. know, because of all this, because it was it's, yeah. it comes in waves in a way. You know. Yeah, and it's been pretty intense the last couple of days. Again, just you know, seeing the patterns and seeing the same things happening in in all aspects of our lives. They're just using the same techniques and same program. Right. So. The Bible is a progressive unfolding of truth. This is from the introduction um, of the Schofield Bible. And the emphasis there was not added. Okay, so they, they italicized the word progressive. <laughs> of that course. was their intent to put that there. So you can see them coming together with the, the progressive era movement of social reform. Um, and they're all trying to you know, create social stability and find a model upon which society, you know, can rid itself of all evil, really. Right. Whether you want to talk to socialists or the Christians, this is how they talk. And, and so this also, um, also one of the things that I recognize here is that things are evil and there's evil in the world. And so just, by having evil in the world, that means that we have to now take action. So it's it's much like how, you know, declaring war or, or being in war times, you're allowed to actually get away with a lot more than you would in times of peace. It's the sort of same idea. Yeah. So on page two of the 100th anniversary edition of the 1917 Schofield Bible, Schofield states that the Pentateuch, otherwise known as the Torah, I might have said Talmud, tells yeah, undeniably... <laughs> the order of the experience of the people of God in all ages. So he's saying the word that comes out of the Torah is infallible, hmm. a revelation of the true history, in fact. And such a history we find in words of matchless grandeur and in an order which rightly understood is absolutely scientific. And that one I added the emphasis because yeah, he's yeah, using the word scientific. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've always known... Or at least, you know, I grew up in a world where science and religion were generally opposed to each other. But we yeah. start to see that through their language, we start to see a crossover of things. Uh, uh, Christian socialism, right? What did I say earlier today? Sociological evangelicalism. You know, right. they're using these words and they're just crossovers. They're just using their own language to explain the same things. And, you know, honestly, there, on another side of this, there is a number of reasons why science and faith and things like that can come together. But all of this has been manufactured. Mm -hmm. This is this is similar to what I've recently found out. Diving into David Icke's past, there is a guy who was exposing a lot of his influences 
talking about theosophy and and theosophy's influence on the uh, entire New Age look at uh, Jesus and the pagan gods and how Horus had all these similarities to Jesus when in reality the, these were written in by people like Crowley and, and right. others, uh, yeah. and not necessarily literal, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a whole other aspect that's related to all of this too. Right, yeah. You know, Crowley's involvement in all of this is key to understand too. We just haven't gone down that road yet but i can right, already we're gonna see. be doing yeah we're gonna have to do other series for sure you know going into different areas of yeah. this because again they've captured all of society all avenues yeah, if you think about all the different personalities in this world they they just found all of the different things that appealed to everybody and started to infiltrate them in the same way it's so nuts. It seems so insane. It seems so far out until you start digging into the forensics yeah. of it all as you have. Yeah. And it becomes very real. So one further note here is that what we, we said earlier that Schofield was a Southern Presbyterian and Woodrow Wilson's father created the Southern Presbyterian church and served as its leader for nearly 40 years. He was central in organizing the breakup of the Presbyterian church into a North and South <laughs> Ruggles. So uh, Woodrow Wilson's dad's name is Joseph Ruggles right. Wilson. And so nobody talks about him, but I went back and looked into him because it seemed like he had a significant role in, you know, Woodrow Wilson's upbringing. And certainly he does. And we start to see that this pattern, there is actually not very many men in, in this story of the early 1900s that don't have very influential fathers doing the very same thing the generation earlier. And after these guys, their children too. And we're going to show you at the end of this show where Louis Brandeis's children are today. And it'll just blow your mind. And what they're doing and what their interests are and the words that they're using. It's incredible. So what also in 1909. are they influencing? Pardon? Sorry, what parts of society they're influencing. Yeah, yeah, exact same ones. So also in 1909, Harvard University President Elliot lectures to the Harvard Summer School of Theology and speaks repeatedly of a new Bible resulting from historical study of its books in the light of recent researches and of new knowledge of the development of the world and mankind. Elliot stated the importance of this new religion in outlining the intellectual progress of the last century. So I've included that there on the left-hand side under Schofield. It's the Congregationalist and Christian World event and comment. So I've underlined some of those key sentences in there. So here we see uh, there's no other Bible that this guy can be talking about. We know that Elliot is totally connected through Phi Beta Kappa to all of these same people. And here he is talking to a summer school seminary on Harvard campus about a new religion from a new scientifically based uh, Bible. This is so nuts. So... You start to, I mean, you got presidents from uh, Ivy League universities now behind this too, supporting it, embracing it, pushing it along. And uh, the Schofield Bible is published by Oxford Press too. So, you know, there are advocates also of gap theory. You know, they all want to extend the the idea of history in the minds of Christians so that they can then try to get them wrapping their heads around evolution eventually. Mm, you mentioned also pre, and I didn't ask you about it, but you mentioned um, 
putting like the like Satan being brought into the situation. Yep. Yep. That's what they believe. And he's input, he's inserted between Genesis 1 1 and 1 2. So I encourage everybody to go onto YouTube. There's a few really good videos out there on the gaps theory. And okay. so we're not going to get into it too deep because I really don't no, know that's it okay. well enough to explain just to, it well enough. Just to put okay. a point on it, yep. you're basically showing this is the evidence for how um, there's a, it's quite, well, no pun intended. There's a gap between the actual Bible and what, you know, what these words like devil, Satan, Lucifer, all these distinctions are versus what they've kind of done is, and have literally put like this big enemy figure in, in a more fundamentalist kind of way, or I'm, I would say I'm that little, it's a dialectic. Okay. You know, yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there wasn't a second judgment day, but they changed the Genesis one, two to be in the past tense. They changed the tense of it so that to read that is implied that there was already one judgment. And now this is where Satan came alive and um, started, you know, doing what he does. Gotcha. And, okay. And yeah. so then there's a second judgment day. And so at this point, I just encourage everybody to go look into gap theory. It'll blow your mind, but it's a, uh, it's a key thing to understand here is that they're, they're manipulating the, the whole concept of the Bible. If they're affecting the, the timeline of it all and mm -hmm. stretching it out into millions of years rather than thousands. Just by subtle little changes in in the language. <clears throat> Very interesting. So, the religion of a multitude of humane persons in the 20th century may therefore be called without inexcusable exaggeration a new religion. Not that a single one of its doctrines and practices is really new in essence, but only that the wider acceptance and better actual application of truths familiar in the past at many times and places, but never taken to heart by the multitude or put in force on a large scale are new. So they're basically saying there that the ideas of the Bible obviously are, you know, thousands of years old. They've been reading these verses out of the Bible because it's King James Bible. It's, you know, published 400 years ago. Right. Years ago. But to disseminate it on a large scale and, and to popularize it is new. And that's President Elliot from his speech. Hmm. So today dispensationalism is morphed into a progressive dispensationalism that differs slightly from the classic dispensationalists although the main adherents they all still widely share include a separation between church and israel a future pre-tribulation rapture a seven-year tribulation and an eventual millennial kingdom in which peace resides for a thousand years so that's sounding very much like the vision promised by utopian ethical socialists and almost verbatim to marx's own theory of our future yeah, right? this is what he says that there's going to be a there's going to be a revolution. There's going to be cataclysmic stuff go on, and then there's going to be a time of peace after that. Mm -hmm. So it's basically just saying the same thing. It's it's basically what conspiracy theorists generally suggest that uh, you know the Book of Revelations is being manufactured in front of our eyes to appeal. Yeah. One That's way or exactly the other, to rope people in, to scare yep. people, all of the above, you know. And and they're doing it 
you know, synthetically, this, this is all man-made, and, and then they're trying to pass it off as divine, right? And so they're saying the same thing here. It's through their works that they are going to manifest the the coming of Christ and this millennial era of peace. It has to be through their works. So they're actually motivating Christians to get active and to start pushing this too, not just to sit on their, uh, sit and do nothing. Mm. So Blackstone wrote the very popular Jesus is coming. This is where he really made his first money. Uh, God's hope for a restless world in 1878. And it became a sort of manifesto for all dispensationalist thought. The book was the movement's first bestseller, selling millions of copies over the next 50 years and has been translated into over 40 other languages. Jesus is coming, right? Wow. And so then... Blackstone traveled to Palestine in 1890-1891 and witnessed Leon Pinsker's new movement, a Rothschild-sponsored development program of agricultural communities in Rishon Lezion and Nahalat Yehuda. It was during his, this visit, Blackstone had the idea of organizing the first conference between Christian and Jews. Historians regard the Conference of Christians and Jews on the past, present, and future of Israel to be the first interfaith conference between Christians and Jews held in the United States. Hmm. So he's really bringing them together. Which, I mean, yeah, it looks on the surface of things like, oh, that's great, you know, putting differences yeah, it's aside. Like, yeah. yeah, it's, it's like great. everything else. It sounds just like great. this new religion that's being built in somewhere. I can't remember where, but they're building some massive... Or they already built it, I think. It's like some massive building that's... A Unitarian church? Kind of? Is it kind of, but it's yeah. way more New World Order-ish. Like, yeah, <laughs> like coexistence, right? Like the bumper yeah, sticker kind of? Yeah, and I can't remember what it's called now, but maybe someone it out there built. watching... Yeah, it must already it be built, built, but this whole thing of uh, all Western religions coming together, which, I mean... <laughs> It's such a, it's so fucked up how they twist and, and just, because in a way that that's, that that's what it should be because it is all the same stories mashed mm-hmm. into one right. direction or another. Absolutely. Right. But the way they're going to hijack it and own it with their experts is the real problem. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you see, Blackstone visiting Palestine and I haven't been able to confirm that he met with Rothschild or he was working with him, but it's, it states in the literature that he was there witnessing the work that was going on. And so that's what inspires him to come back home and bring Jews and Christians together and push for a Jewish homeland in support of uh, Jews, you know, so I would say that he's in direct contact with Rothschild. Yeah. You know, and then you look at Brandeis's involvement through the Palestine Economic Corporation and all of that. Well, yeah, we would see. And then as I'm going to get to here in a moment, you know, Blackstone and Brandeis are communicating big time. So in 1891, Blackstone famously published the Blackstone Memorial Petition in response to what he witnessed in Palestine. The petition was presented to U.S. President Benjamin Harris in an effort to gain American support for the Jewish situation in Central Europe. And to secure the holding at an early date, 
of an international conference to consider the condition of the Israelites and their claims to Palestine as their ancient home. So he's he's pushing for an uh, international conference in which they can create Israel, and that's the Paris Peace Conference, 1919. That's where that hmm. book was down. Yep. And he is a major player in all of it, as we'll see in this next paragraph. This is a full five years before Theodor Herzl's Der Judenstadt and six years before Herzl's named president of the Zionist organization at the first Zionist Congress in, in Basel. So Harrison acknowledged Blackstone and the memorial, but chose not to involve himself. And there the petition remained until it was revo- revived by Louis Brandeis in 1916. Hmm. Though introduced to the petition through his personal confidant, Nathan Strauss, Louis Brandeis would then formulate a plan to have the petition presented to Woodrow Wilson. It was adamant that he wasn't mentioned at all. So by influence, he wanted to, uh, to influence Wilson uh, strictly by Blackstone and, and his appeals rather than have Wilson know that it comes from Brandeis or that Brandeis was organizing it. He felt wow. it would be more impact coming from another fellow presbyterian you know evangelical christian which he's got a point it absolutely would (laughs) you know rather than a frankist jew you know right uh and so blackstone had sent letters to wilson as early as 1914 asking for his assistance in the coming redemption of israel he attached a copy of jesus is coming and then on november 10th of 1914 wilson thanked blackstone for his book through his personal secretary joseph tumulty and on april 5th 16 blackstone sent wilson his brochure the times of the gentiles and the war in the light of prophecy in which he predicted a return of the jews to palestine in 1917 or 1918 and that's exactly what happens 1917 is the balfour declaration Mm -hmm. and so i've included the the receipts there of the balfour declaration or sorry of the blackstone petition and so there's both the 1891 and the 1960 1916 version Wow. So you can zoom in on these things. I've I've got them as high resolution as I can so that, you know, you can actually zoom in and read them and see the quality. Literal receipts. And you'll see the names that are involved. The people that have signed on to this petition. They're big this names. This is unreal. So. Yeah, this has absolutely me. nothing to do with like disparaging a certain group of of nope. like a people's <laughs> background and and uh, you know once you get into the details that's this is what you find out that yeah. you know this this is what needs to be uncovered here. Yeah, this is unreal. Say, you know, people I've heard people say that about me that I'm you know oh, centric yeah, I, on a on a particular type of people, but if you go look at my work, it's not true at all. We're just trying nope. to find the truth and where this new world order came from. And so we're identifying all types of people, everybody really. Yeah. And let involved. me, and you know what, it really depends on how far back in time you're willing to look. And f- it takes a few thousand years to, to start pointing a finger at someone else. Like, mm. to be honest, like, cause it's, it's just goes way, way back. Yeah. With not just, you know, yeah, different different thread. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and no, and that's what we're talking about. Was that that's what we're showing? You know, these mm-hmm. these are, you know, American evangelical Christians. Right. That's who is you know considered the father of Zionism. If you go and look deep enough to find the true source, it's going to be him, William Eugene Blackstone, who is a direct descendant of the first settler of Boston. So 
Huh. There's familial, you yeah, know, Blackstone. Li- I live 15 minutes from Blackstone Valley. Right. And that's got to be named after him. Absolutely. That makes sense family, now. For sure. Yeah. That's crazy. Sure. And it's Blackstone. The, the, the first Blackstone that shows up as the first settler of Boston, it's Blackstone, but it's the same Blackston. family. B-L-A-X-C-O-N. Of I've course, got problem coming from a f- that it's a direct descendant. So if anybody's got a problem with that, just come find me. And these are old, old, old names too. These are names tied to duty. And that's right. Those are the yep. oldest names we have sure. in European history. Yep. That's key to understand here that this is all old school, you know, mm-hmm. old blood. This isn't just yes. new. These, this Not goes back close. six, seven. Some of these guys, these ministers are, you know, sixth and seventh in line of former ministers of their family, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lutheran back in the day, but then they start to turn into Baptists and Congregationalists, right? And, you know, depending on the times, right? Exactly. <laughs> Following that same path, yeah. To yeah, they're breaking away from, <laughs> They're breaking away from the church, really. Right. One sort of step Which, at a time. I mean, yeah, f- fuck the church. It's, it's like, again, we have to lay that out for people in some cases. You know, it's like, yes, on one hand, the, the church is the old world order for sure. Mm-hmm. But this is... This is a uh, problem, reaction, solution. It's divide and conquer. Yeah. It's it's all of these things, you know? Yeah, they're inserting. There's a lot of different pieces. This is good to know for today, too, because they're inserting evil. Mm-hmm. And then they're claiming that this world is evil, you know, much like they do today. I mean, without the thought of an evil world, how much would they get away with? Right. That's just a, a fresh thought of mine just in the last couple of days after the, this latest research. Absolutely. The question of those kinds of things, how evil is really our world? Or are they fabricating all of that too? That's something I I ask myself often. I talk to my wife about that often. How much of the the horrors and the awfulness it's what Bill Hicks said so long ago too. You know, you look on your on your news and it says rape, death, famine, murder, and you look out your window and it's just chirp, chirp. Chirp, chirp. Yeah, and they claim that it, they do so because it gets good ratings, but hmm. I don't think so. I, I think that, you know, human nature at its very core is not meant to be. No, but we're broken. Evil. So therefore these things do appeal to us. So it's like we're, we're mm-hmm, broke. Right. Uh, this is again, this is a different thread. You and me have to have a free for all episode soon, yeah, okay. just so we can go back and forth for sure. But yeah. uh yeah, that's it's, we're a broken people because of what's yeah. been done, maybe naturally on some levels, but also manufactured on other levels, wars, yeah. things like that. But um one way or the other, all this nefariousness does appeal to our lower natures that we are all being ruled by. And that's why it always comes back to our own responsibility, not only to do our own research, but to grow our own lives and grow our own selves and be, you know, better ourselves away from who gives a fuck who who gets into office or whatever. Mm -hmm. None of them are coming to save you. None of it's coming to Mm -hmm. save you. You're the only one that can really elevate yourself. And, you know, that may seem like a very godless uh, take on it, but I don't mean it to be that way. You know, just. Uh, yeah. Well, we got to be the, careful nowadays in an inf- information war where we pay attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where's our attention, attention being paid? Is everything. And if we 
are going to entertain the thought of overthrowing all of this finally it's going to be because we started paying it no attention and started building a beautiful argument against it absolutely so that's what we try to do cool so Back a on. letter from a letter from Nathan Strauss to WEB dated May 8th, 1916 reads, it would have done your heart good to have heard Mr. Brandeis assert what a valuable contribution to the cause your document is. In fact, he agrees with me that you are the father of Zionism as your work antedates Herzl. So Wilson was presented with the 1916 Blackstone Memorial on May 5th, 1916 attached was the original memorial with its 413 signatures. The petition is signed by John D. Rockefeller, William Rockefeller, R. Uh, J.P. Morgan, Russell Sage, so that's Skull and Bones, Chauncey Depu, and nearly 400 others. There's all kinds of other names in there. Um, and so Russell Sage makes an appearance here, starts funding these guys' books, just like they were funding the National Consumers League and the creation of the, you know, the publication of um, Josephine Goldmark's book. So we talked last week right, about Brandeis yeah. working with the National Consumers League and, and changing legislation, and that was their main goal. Well, Russell Sage was founding, uh, funding all of that, and they're here again funding these guys, and I'll show you. Very interesting. So that might help you understand too, hey, how yeah. they are going after every aspect, regardless of what people think. It's like, you know, this movement against Hockey Canada here in Canada you know, follows similar lines in that they know that the one thing that galvanizes Canadians brings us together is hockey. And in a, yeah. in a very similar <laughs> way, it's our religion. I mean, I see people wearing shirts that say hockey is Canada. Canada is hockey. I've worn one before too. We love our hockey here. It brings us all together. So what are they doing? They're attacking that institution. We see that happening presently right now. And the leadership of hockey Canada has all been torn down and replaced. And so, you know, Typical that's institution. That's uh, uh, a, a piece of Canadiana. And that's why when I see that happening here in the States uh, to a number of different uh, American institutions, ones that are, you know, entertainment sake, whatever, it's like people act so surprised like they're going to be able to call them out on something. It's like, well, they want you to see this. They want mm -hmm. you to see it falling apart right in front of your eyes because yeah. that's the whole point. Yeah. And if, you, if we aren't sophisticated enough to know exactly what institutions and organizations need to be, be removed, we might just waste the whole system. And I see a lot right. of people saying that down with capitalism, down with the whole West. We've got to start again when it's not like that. You know, it's it's mainly social science research institutions and applied science uh, institutions that we should be removing from our society. Places like the new yeah. school for social science, you know, the university in exile, these are major institutions in America now that really replaced old institutions that were far less harmful. And mm -hmm. now, you know, it's, it's basically Marxism normalized. So the principles laid out, by Blackstone were re remarkably similar to those of the Balfour Declaration and League of Nations mandate for Palestine three decades later. This is why Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, leader of the American Zionist movement, <clears throat> asked William Blackstone to reissue his memorial petition in 1916, believing it incorporated the principles upon which a just and humanitarian Jewish homeland movement could be founded. 
Brandeis believed that Blackstone's petition, antedating as it did Theodore Herzl's own participation in the Zionist movement, was destined to become a historical of historical significance and called Blackstone the true founder of Zionism. <clears throat> so we're just substantiating claims. There's more than one person that says that, and here you see that they're actually naming Brandeis. And my sources are all messed up right now. I didn't have time to organize them, so in the next couple of days, I'll reorganize that. We've got a ton of sources but Hell just yeah, ran out no of doubt. time no but you know we're we're laying down the sources right here besides so it's not like you have to even go search they're right there right so Stephen s weiss one of brandeis's inner corps lieutenants communicated often with blackstone on several matters concerning the jew wise the rabbi of the free synagogue in new york was an original member and vice chairman of brandeis's provisional executive committee for Gen general zionist affairs so uh, Stephen Weiss, one of the lieutenants we've talked about in part uh, one and two, here he is again, and he's mm -hmm. communicating directly with Blackstone. So Brandeis, uh, as the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court Justice, we talked about how he had to step away from his connections in a lot of places, especially his Zionist ones, <clears throat> while we see the same thing here. It's his lieutenants that are actually doing all the work, but he's definitely steering right. everything from behind the scenes. <laughs> so they just use the same patterns over and over again yep yep this is what i really want people to see i'm just going to keep doing it this is what's so important about this 10 weeks is you're really going to start to see it compound we'll be yeah. able to overlay the same pattern over all different aspects and then you're going to really have these a series of aha moments as we get close to the end it's again it's like non-creative and even though it's like all these creatives are being used and puppeted, they're ruled over by these non-creatives. That's what yeah, it feels exactly. like. Exactly. They are coveting the intelligent creatives all day long. You know, all yeah. of these child protégés. Because mm -hmm. if the if the government can coerce them, then they've got all the smarts too. They've there's a brain drain on our side. Yeah. You know what I mean, right? Absolutely. So this is again why it's important to have the trivium. This is the education that they removed. So at the same time, we're uncovering, you know, the true history and exposing what they did. We also have to be infusing in, or inserting that knowledge that was missing. And if, if we want to entertain the thought of winning any arguments, right, mm -hmm. they are masters of the liberal arts. They know the magic of words. They're wordsmiths, as we right. know. Quite so literally. If we want to win, we're going to have to, you know, Start reading the trivium, start understanding grammar, logic, rhetoric, you know, being able to put sophisticated arguments together to defeat theirs because we have the truth. They don't. So it's all about finding the right argument to Bingo. break theirs down. And it's so usually the one thing that should always give us so much confidence, Andy, is that we have the truth. They don't. They're coming from a place of weakness. We have strength. So we should never screw that up. We should Absolutely. never, ever look like we aren't confident. Yeah, and it's it usually is empirical evidence that uh, they really don't want us having. Yeah, it's the primary source material. Yep. We're showing through their literature and, and you know, through it's, artifacts what really happened. And, I mean, and I they've draw turned everyone off to it. In the background. No, These of course not. Off the internet. And, the, the, you know, the, they've... Um, yeah, they've made everyone so opposed to uh, 
to even entertaining or th that this is uh, fascinating or interesting to learn about it all to begin with. You know, they don't learn right. their own history. Yeah. Yeah. They so go to the experts. Actually, yep. Here's a letter from Brandeis, May 22nd, 1916. My dear Mr. Blackstone, it starts. <laughs> I am Jesus. very glad to know from your letter of the 15th of the memorial, which you are preparing to present to President Wilson, reviving the memorial, which you presented to President Harrison 25 years ago. That document, annotating as it did Theodore Herzl's own participation in the Zionist movement, is destined to become a historical of historical significance. And I trust that you may be as successful in securing support for this new memorial as you were a quarter of a century ago. In view of the work being directly undertaken by the Jewish Zionist organization, your memorial would presumably be most effective if it derives its support from non-Jews. I hope you will keep me fully informed of the progress that you are making and will advise me in advance when you are purposing to present the memorial so that we may give such aid as may be possible in rendering it effective. Best wishes, very cordially yours, Louis D. Brandeis. So he's wow. conspiring here just like he did with the Taylor Society. Just like he did, you know, yep. in infiltrating the three branches of American government. Same way. He's just right there whispering. Yep. Always. Yeah. And, and nobody knows about this guy, but he is probably the primary author of everything that's going on. Yeah. I haven't been able to find anybody, you know, more involved than Brandeis. Yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, Huxley's pretty intense. Uh, yeah, Norbert Wiener. Like we've we've talked about a lot of interesting, influential people, but mm -hmm. we're kind of getting closer and closer to like the nerve center here. Yes, I would say at least at least ac according to the the late eighteen hundreds, early twentieth century. You know, it's yeah. yeah crazy. I would say I would use the term here: high level grand strategist, and um, on the level of Huxley at least right so these guys are behind the scenes it's very similar to huxley and how you know he's he's the head of mk ultra yet they've got mm. Sidney gottlieb as the face and that's the only name that isn't redacted evil scientist yeah, yeah exactly right? yeah the evil playing the evil mad scientist you know yeah instead and they, of the know, heroic 60s author and they put a lot of responsibility at the feet of gottlieb even though you know he's not as, nearly as influential as Huxley. It's the same as they put all the guilt at the feet of Woodrow Wilson or, you know, others throughout this when right. really they were the ones being controlled and steered. It's unreal. So uh, Brandeis actually had Blackstone address the Zionist General Congress in Philadelphia in 1916. Blackstone spoke in front of 4,000 at the Metropolitan Opera House. Brandeis introduced Blackstone as the most important ally Zionism has outside of its own ranks. Wow. But he's got him speaking in front of people now. So William Blackstone made a central contribution to American evangelical judo-centrism by offering a nationalist adaptation of Darby's premillennial dispensationalism. Blackstone crafted a middle path between futurist and historicist prophecy interpretation. His efforts to shape political discourse generated a great deal of intra-Jewish debate. Very interesting. And so here's something, you know, they, they gather a lot of information from us that's metadata and not specific maybe. And here's a great example of us collecting metadata on them. For anybody that's wondering just how close Brandeis and Blackstone were, well, there's 47 pages of personal documents regarding Blackstone Memorial Petition in the Brandeis Papers. Now, we can't Jesus. get access to those and we can't see exactly what they're saying to each other. Some of it we can, 
but the majority of it is behind a you know a gate mm-hmm. 47 of pages of of communication says a lot yeah i'd say so today blackstone like the rest of the dispensationalists occupy an obscure area of history seldom considered blackstone helped found biola university in los angeles and was its very first dean yet in 2013 during a commemoration of another biola founder ruben a tory where a bronze plaque was presented upon which it stated tory and not blackstone was the first dean of biola Blackstone seemingly erased from the history of the very university he helped found. As of 2015, they've named a student's residence after him. And on the website, they do finally acknowledge Blackstone's importance to the university as its first dean. Hmm. But they never changed that bronze plaque. So it states here, unfortunately, the plaque included the statement Biola's first dean. At the time, many old timers commented, that's not correct. William Blackstone was the first dean. Written communication subsequently corrected this error, but the bronze plaque remains unaltered. Thus, nearly everyone today is unaware that William Blackstone, not R.A. Torrey, was Biola's first dean. So he's he's in obscurity even there, which is yeah. weird, right? Like they're trying to protect him. Right. And so more communication on the left-hand side. I invite people to go look and read. So that gets us through the dispensationalists. So that's one group of people that Brandeis, we've proven, is you know deeply involved with. Mm-hmm. But now we get into the social gospel movement. And this is where it's going to get weird. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so it's all underneath Christian fundamentalism. This is just another group of people creating the sort of same ideas. Now, we're looking at Walter Rauschenbusch there. So before I even get going, I want to say that his son, Paul Arthur Rauschenberg, married Louis Brandeis's daughter, Elizabeth. Oh. Okay. So think about that. They're both grandparents or both parents to, you know, their children. So I don't know what that relation is. What would you call that? But they're, they're very <laughs> close. Obviously, they have, you know, personal connections and there's going to be some intimacy there just because their children are, are married. Right. So it's important to know that as we go forward. This is the connection between Brandeis and, and the social gospel m- movement. Yeah, so the name by, of blood, by relations was, like this. Wow. Sorry? No, just it's fascinating that this is how they're related how it's related. Yeah. On so such familial. a familial level. Yeah. Yeah. So the name of Walter Rauschenbusch is synonymous with the social gospel. He's considered the father of the social gospel movement. Okay. okay. All right. So here's where we start to see the, the combination of socialism and Christianity, the Christian leaders. Uh, so think sociological evangelicalism. It's, it's the scientific approach that's being used by, you know, the socialists at the same time, they're using the exact same game plan. They're just approaching the religious. Oh, wow. So, Socialism offered not only a radical critique of American political and economic institutions, it also offered the seal symbols and sense of participation in a world transforming cause often associated with Christianity itself. I think I read that already, but that's showing that Christianity and socialism have a lot of parallels, just like, you know, British imperialism and colonialism uh, all have similar parallels to Zionism and, you know, other isms 
right. including corporatism, you know, sort of global expansion, global dominance. It's all sort of similar parallels. This is why they could get along because they had similar ends. They were just all disagreeing somewhat on the means. Which is kind of perfect for the people running the show. That way no one is ever too close. Nat there's like a natural um, compartmentalization. Yeah. Yep. Yep. This is key to compartmentalization. You see it all over the place. Yeah. So no one, none of these groups are really benefiting. It's who it's whoever's not behind really knowing. them. I don't yeah. think that they understand the overall game plan because they're, they're in a lot of ways, empaths, they're compassionate people for what's happening. And so we're talking about the noble lie and, you know, mm. the unattainable ideal that, that mechanism, that tool to manipulate and persuade people to do their bidding. It's something we see today, you know, quite often. For sure. For sure. People taken advantage and, of by their own social cues and, and yeah. yeah and it wouldn't be happening if we had learned from our history. Exactly. It's just impossible. It's like knowing logical fallacy. Now you know when you're being lied to, so it's impossible. So Walter Rauschenbusch was born in Rochester, New York, 1861, to Carl Augustus Heinrich Rauschenbusch and Carolyn Rump. Walter's father, a German Lutheran turned Baptist clergyman, arriving in the U.S. in 1846 after studying at Berlin and Bonn universities. Once arriving in New York, he entered the Baptist communion. And in 1858 was head of the German department of the Rochester Theological Seminary, where he would remain for 30 years. So that's his dad. <laughs> so following high school, Walter traveled to Germany with his father, where he studied for four years at an evangelical German prep school in Gütersloh and Berlin University, near where his father was born. Not too far. So the same area. They go back with his dad. So you can see that there's some intent. The father wanted his son to go back and learn, but specifically from certain people and have the same background as him. Right. So they have to go back to Germany to learn for four years before he comes back. Interesting. So connection. upon returning to the United States, Walter would follow his father to the Rochester Theological Seminary, where he gained a doctorate in divinity. In 1886, Walter VI, in a succession of ministers, began his pastorate at the Second German Baptist Church in Hell's Kitchen in New York. And this is really where he starts to see the plight and the problems, the inequality, the social issue coming out of industrialization. Rauschenberg felt it the responsibility of the church to improve the deplorable urban conditions in the tenements brought on by industrialization and along with several others founded the entire social gospel movement through the creation of the brotherhood of the kingdom. Interesting wording there. Yes. So the social gospel movement was an outgrowth of Christian socialism and Christian <laughs> socialism, a new religion first put forth by utopian socialist Henri de Saint Simon to serve as an authority over the realm of industry and trade. So just like Brandeis is trying to solve the issues between capital and labor, so are the Christians. I mean, this right. is really the catalyst. This is where you see the dialectic. The industrial revolution is, you know, the first step in this Hegelian, you know, social reform. Right. And so the Brotherhood of the Kingdom movement started by Rauschenbusch representing to the Christian denominations what Walter Lippmann proposed to the secular as the Great Society. 
Christian socialism looking very much like the religious complement to progressivism. Brandeis's daughter Elizabeth married Russian Bush, Russian Bush's son Paul in 1925. Wow. So August Heinrich on the right-hand side, I included this little piece of information about Walter's dad. He was one of the earliest Baptist leaders in North America. He's like hmm. the second, maybe even the most, when you see the, the quote that I pulled out of there, no one man exerted a larger influence on the life of our churches than he did through his classroom preaching, newspaper writing, and books. That's Walter Rauschenbusch's dad. God, this guy must have been terrifying. So, yeah, the, all of these guys have social standing of some sort, and they all come from basically that same area. Bohemia. Mm -hmm. So, Russian Bush's own shortly-lived periodical magazine, For the Right, was created in the interests of the working people. For the Right set out the Declaration of Principles for the Christian Socialist Society of New York City. So, that's a branch of the greater Christian Socialist Society. They opened a branch in New York, and he's setting the Declaration of Principles. So Russian Bush's stated goal was to apply the ethical principles of Jesus Christ so that our industrial relationships may be humanized, our economic system may be moralized, we band together as Christian socialists. Oh my God, this is so ridiculous. Okay. Like, There had to be people going, what does one have to do with the other? Get this the hell, like, what is happening? Right. Uh, maybe not though. Well, maybe, like you said, maybe it is hindsight. Well, this is all right at the height of the progressive era when yeah. all of this, the social upheaval was at its worst. The tenements were at its worst. It's just no uh, one's going to see this for and, what it is. And yeah, all the poverty. So, you know, it inspired a lot of people to do things. And then just like we're kind of okay with certain things during war times that we wouldn't be during peace times. This is exactly what it is that, mm -hmm. you know, they're declaring war on poverty. And so underneath that, they can make all kinds of, social reforms that you know normally people wouldn't be happy with but i wouldn't say that that's the whole thing i, I would say no. you know a lot of the times people didn't know yeah and then no, exactly. of course those that did know were squashed just like we are today right their voices silenced because they owned the media by then 1917 they had newspapers all under their Oh yeah, you got to look back at the, the invention of the printing press and all that, and and where print was coming from. It's always been in the hands of the few. It's always been in the hands of, you know, who dominates. Yeah. So I've got to just go for about a minute. I'll be right back. If you could just sure, cover for no me, problem. Andy, sorry to yeah. do that. No, no problem at all. Just want to catch up with the chat here. Hey, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. I uh, hope we're digging this live thing. I think once um, this Rise of the Experts series is concluded, we'll either um, keep going with Dwayne on different topics here and there, or at least I think maybe sticking to going live once, once a week, um, probably Monday nights for now at least who knows what may happen, but um, this has taken up most of my podcast energy right now. So I don't know how many other episodes will be coming out right now uh, amidst this. Plus I'm uh, doing a lot of other stuff going on in, in life, but um, yeah, definitely want to do more lives. I want to get Shane back on here. I want to get more, um, more, more topics back, 
you know, I've been talking mainly box saga or this. So, you know, there's a lot of other areas of history in between these two eras that need to be addressed. And I think there's a lot that can be said, but, um, it's good to see everybody here. Appreciate you guys. I've got a lot more time on my hands right now because I recently got, uh, let go from my main job. So that's been sucking. So my new job is to find a new job. <laughs> so anyway, um, I want to yeah, do so more everybody of this. support Andy when you can, man. For sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> doing some great stuff here and allowing us to get this out there and, and make people aware of the true history. So Hell yeah, by all man. means support. If you're inspired by this information, support Andy Rouse. Let's see if we can get it. So he doesn't have to find that job. That would be, beautiful. <laughs> that would be intense. Going. I want to do a lot more than, uh, than just host a brilliant, uh, investigative journalist like yourself. I got to put more effort into it for sure. <laughs> well, you know, in a lot of ways, this, when I, when I go back to the farm here in a month or so, this, this research is going to stop for about six months. Word. So, you know, that's really too bad. I wish I had somebody that could continue it or, you know, be in a, in a position where I could do both and continue this research throughout the year. We've been trying to get better at it. And we have, I think, been a little more prolific in getting stuff out, you know, despite being really busy with the farm, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think this information is so important that we have to keep pushing. And so I got about a month left and uh, yeah. we'll try to, you know, close some of these uh, open-ended researches so that we can come to some conclusions. And I also feel that pressure, not, not to your level on the farm, but you know, we're, we're gearing up now. My wife's getting all her right. seeds in order and what we're planting and, and, Yep. And we're going a little bit simpler this year than we did the past few years, which is nice. We're going to streamline some more of our popular vegetables that we want to grow. Right. You know? But um, yeah, it's going to be just more shit on my plate, you know? So right. who knows? Maybe some of my lives will be focused on the garden and focused on yeah. farming and stuff like that. Who knows what the future will bring there? But um, but yeah, we want to get, uh, get back to what we're talking about here with the mm -hmm. social uh, gospel. Yeah. Um, so the Christian socialism that Rauschenbusch embraced stood aloof, not only from Marxian doctrine, but also from any socialist party. We are concerned with principles, not with methods. We are evolutionists, not revolutionists. In this sense, we are socialist, socialist in the spirit rather than the letter. Now I put that in there because it sounds a lot like when Walter Lippmann said, the adjective we like is new. Whether right. and and progressive was the the word that they wanted, whether it be Theodore Roosevelt's new nationalism or Woodrow Wilson's new freedom or the socialism of the syndicalists, right? right. So the we're seeing socialism. the same thing being said. They're just distancing themselves from the word socialism. And really, if you want to know what was behind, you know, both of the red scares, this is what they were hiding, because there was a red scare in 1917, just like there was in the 30s, that that coincided with the war. And it was a distraction, you know, communism in, in many ways is just a front. Mm -hmm. It's not even real. And what no. it allowed was the socialists to sneak in the back door as, you know, non-interventionalists or uh, pacifists. And this is really how the whole international order 
comes to be by wow. using nice sounding words. And now, we <laughs> as always, and, you know, today we are at war there with NATO in the same exact place that we were then. Jesus. So, Cycles. And it's really perpetual. I've lived in a world of war my whole life. I'm 52. Yeah, same here. There's I'm been only very 30. few times that, you know, there hasn't been all out war going on. So the motivation, this is from Rise of Social Gospel Within American Protestantism, page 117. The motivation for this distinctly religious movement was supplied chiefly by the ethical impulses flowing from a progressive theology. The key words there, ethical and progressive, because the ethical socialists are the Fabians. Right. And the progressives, we know who those are. Those guys are. Louis Brandeis, the fathers of progressivism. So he's just mm. saying that they're coming together here, as we've already proven. So of the many perplexing issues growing out of industrialism, <clears throat> those that concerned the relations of labor and capital and their interpretation by socialism so largely dominated the interests of socially minded clergymen in this decade that the social gospel may without question be described historically as the response of Protestant protestantism to those specific situations so this is pro protestantism um trying to take responsibility or trying to fix the social ills mm -hmm. just like the socialists are right the muckrakers we've introduced people a little bit to the muckrakers these are all socialists right you know ida tarbell she's She's responsible for breaking up Standard Oil. Well, she's a socialist. And her and her other socialist friends created the American magazine and then promoted all of this progressive and religious, new religion and everything through those progressive magazines. Cosmopolitan, um, you know, Collier's, Harper's Weekly. These are all progressive magazines. And so we see they're all in cahoots there too. They're all buddies. And just like they co-opt Christianity, well, they're co-opting news media. Right. or literature or you know um popular scholarly media. work yeah. intellectual exactly. the intellectual aspect of society you think of carol quigley and he talks about the seven aspects of society well intellectual is one of them just as religion is right so they're just identifying the the different aspects in which they need to reorient us and then they're devising ways to to appeal to each one in a different way except the technique is exactly the same. I like that word reorient. It really is yep. exactly that. And it reminds we're both... me of what we often talk about in box saga talk. We talk about re legion. I've mentioned that to you before as well. The mm -hmm. little mm -hmm. twisting of twisting of our, the word religion, but a re legioning or as, um, as you're putting it, it's, um, it really is just a reorientation of, not only society, but of the human mind of consciousness. Yeah. It really government, the control of the mind. Yeah. And we talked about how government and cybernetics really have the oh. same definition. Yes. Right. Controlling society as if a helmsman on a ship. Right. And so the ship analogy works so well, you know, whether you're talking law or, you know, social engineering, because they wanted to remove us from our moorings. So our boat is anchored to things that we appreciated and valued. And so then at the same time, they understood that they had to you know, break us free from those things in order to then start steering the ship in the direction that they wanted. Right. 
So Francis Greenwood Peabody, that's a famous last name. I haven't made any connections, but I'm assuming 100% that he's connected to the famous Peabody family. Mm -hmm. He's a professor of ethics and theology at Harvard from 1880 until his retirement in 1913. The Unitarian studied at Heidelberg and then Leipzig and Hal universities. So we're just showing that all of these guys get the same education. So Charles Richmond Henderson, Baptist minister, Bachelor of Arts, Master of Arts, Bachelor of Divinity. So 1892, he was asked by William Rainey Harper, president of University of Chicago, a devout Baptist himself, to join the newly formed Faculty of Social Science at the University of Chicago as a professor of sociology. So here we have a Baptist min minister, but also a professor of sociology. So in you know a lot of the literature that we're going to show you, he's labeled as a sociologist, not a Baptist minister. That's um, interesting. Two very thing I was going to state here, but I can't remember it presently. Oh, and um, Chicago University was designed; they built the thing from the get-go to be a Baptist, the first Baptist university. Hmm. So baptism is all over this. Wow. So. 1892, it's so weird to see social sciences and religion coming together. Right like this. now, Andy, we're preparing everybody for law because yeah, some of these guys <laughs> show up in the law uh, articles. Okay, mm -hmm. this is an amazing coming together, but you, we got to just keep following it through these weeks. And as we get going, it's kind of like a fireworks show, man. As yeah, we get dude. closer, it's just going to be even more mind blowing on how this all came together. And I'm going to leave zero. Uh, argument as to you know the reality of all of these things hell yeah hopefully through this 10-week program because it you know in my mind i'm totally um sure that these things have happened i know that this is what's happened well and you're oh, showing it yeah i'm showing it and asking people you know prove me wrong right i mean what we're creating here and what we're showing is the most um reasonable explanation to how we got here yeah yeah if we're if we're talking like what has occurred over the last hundred years yeah. or more 150 years this is what's been going on yeah and we're of talking course it social, stretches way further back than that you know we're talking social contract yeah we're being mature and sophisticated and and going at this in a responsible way we're not telling you aliens are coming from outer space or you know no. spreading q tartary or any of that stuff we're going to the <laughs> sources and you know i'm not saying this is the end all and be all because nothing is entirely but if we're talking human beings on planet earth primary source material and source material is the best way to go and you should land as close as possible to the truth that way but if we're going to steer let ourselves be steered by emotion and not really pay attention or take responsibility for where we pay attention. Well, we can end up anywhere. And that's, you know, a boat out in the storm. Imagine you get out there in the wrapped up in all of the emotions. It's like being out there in the middle of a storm and what happens to a boat when that happens, if not capsized, you know, you're at the whim of the weather. You're at the exactly. whim of the winds. So it's exactly the same analogous, but you know, so beautifully said. William Rainey Harper is the president of Chicago University, a devout Baptist himself. He asks uh, Henderson to join the social science faculty. Okay, this is what they called it at first before sociology. It was just social science. Uh, 
and this is the first independent sociology department in the United States, founded the same year Henderson arrived by Albion Woodbury Small. And so we get to know him in episode six very well. Okay. So we leave it kind of there on him. <clears throat> and just recognize that he's the father of sociology or the, uh, the founder of the first ever sociology department at a major American university. Okay, that's key. And he studied at Leipzig, Berlin, and Johns Hopkins. So Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, those are the two key connections back to Prussia. Wow. It's really, when you look Holy at them, that's shit. what they are. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, University of Chicago, directly from Prussia, their, their logo or their symbol or their seal, it even says it on it. <clears throat> Comes from, it's always going back to Prussia. Yeah. Everything does so far. So Johns Hopkins is a, a place that they land coming back. And then he goes to Chicago University, like we say, forms the first sociological department. Uh, Henderson, a member of the American Economic Association and the American Academy of Political and Social Science. And so I mention those things because they just keep coming up. These people uh, are, you know, a lot of these men take a turn as being presidents of associations like the American Economic one. Mm -hmm. uh, and this goes to the inquiry. You know, once they start establishing this on an international level, it's the same thing. All these inquiry members are presidents of the American Economic Association or the American Statistical Association or the American Historical Association. So what is that? But taking total control of the social sciences. If you know what the Bingo. social sciences are, that's what it is. It's like anthropology, history, economics. And that's what all of these professors are. And they become, you know, the authority at the fountain and determines how much information goes out or, or if any at all. And they become the spokesperson for entire aspects of our lives and entire fields of study. Again, this is you know, the spokesperson, the person, as we call it in this series, the expert. This is, it's your, mm -hmm. as you were saying earlier, man, to me in the chat, that the the expert is all over this stuff. Yeah. It's everywhere because yeah. it's so, literally the control of how we perceive these topics yeah. of reality. Yep, that's a good way to say it because you'd mentioned the last time that maybe we misnamed this series by calling it the rise of the expert. But as you start to see that this, yeah, this is exactly what it is. It's just being told through basically one man. Because right, of, yeah, he's but so it's, influential in it. It's and it's not just him, but it, it is. Yeah, it's all these incredible characters. <laughs> yeah. So William Rainey Harper also a professor of Semitic languages at Yale in 1886. So he knows all about, you know, the Semitic languages. So he would mm. know the, the falseness of calling somebody an anti-Semite if they're critical of Israeli foreign policy. Right. Uh, he's named Woolsey Professorship of Biblical Literature in 1889. And he's the principal of the Chautauqua College of Liberal Arts. And later, he's the head of the entire Chautauqua movement. So anybody that's unfamiliar with Chautauqua, this is kind of like it's a traveling outdoor education. I don't know. It's almost like a traveling circus, but they're they're teaching people Christian values along the way. Chautauqua movement, I was introduced when I was doing my research into the Pacific Palisades and the Exila Tarata mm. and the, the political salons up there. The first ever residents of um, 
Pacific Palisades of the northern the hills uh, northwest of Los Angeles were mm. these people from the Chautauqua uh, movement. And now the demographics have totally changed and it's almost all exclusively Jewish um, owned homes in the Pacific Palisades. Interesting. For just over a hundred years, it's totally changed. So that's why I want to include that because uh, Chautauqua was also an important movement in all of this, just like the social gospel. It's just an aspect of Christian fundamentalism and the spreading of the word of God. But right. here they're going out in a, in a large group of people, bringing tents and tables and lecturers and, and ministers to help propagate the word of God. Yeah, I'm watching an the HBO series thing. right now called the uh, the something gemstones, like the Royal Gemstones or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's about a, a fundamentalist Christian evangelical family. Oh, yeah. and it's and they're telling this story. I'm in like season three now, and it's like it's kind of like watching The Sopranos, but instead of like organized crime it's organized religion and yeah. it's basically the same thing it's pretty right. wild yeah and so you know in a lot of ways we're asking people to just take a fresh perspective take a take a new look at things and hear you know very similar to understand that socialism and and christianity are very very similar was something new to me but totally makes sense yeah. and you can see how they all know it and they all admit it it's very obvious that they're working together mm -hmm. so uh, uh, William Rainey Harper. He was a key member of the organizational committee that created the University of Chicago and was elected its first president. The American Baptist Education Society donated 400000 to the university's founding and John D. Rockefeller donated 600000 The land was donated by Jekyll Island Club member Marshall Field. <clears throat> so that's just showing you that's not all John D. Rockefeller funded the creation of university of chicago mm -hmm. there was another uh, major contributor and that was the american baptist education society wow creating the the first baptist university that's what the university of chicago is still today so washington gladden he was a pastor of the first congregational church of columbus ohio he's a pragmatist he's i don't have his picture here but just wanted to include his name washington gladden uh, William Newton Clark, also an ordained Baptist minister. He received a BA and a Bachelor of Divinity at Colgate Seminary. He lectured at Johns Hopkins, Harvard, Yale. He wrote an outline of Christian theology for the use of students in Hamilton Theological Seminary. So he's writing the, the textbooks there too, which was then published in 1898 by Charles Scribner's and Sons. In 1903, he wrote Huxley and Philip. Brooks. Now I went and tried to find, uh, you know, dive into that a little bit more, but I couldn't find it in time, but he, there he is. He's mentioning Huxley and Huxley is actually mentioned in the Schofield Bible, strangely enough. What? And that's well, not yeah, the all notes, this, obviously, right? <laughs> right? It's oh, okay. uh, Darwin. Bulldog. Mm, okay. Generation prior. All and right. Samuel Zane Batten. This guy's interesting. I haven't been able to de delve into looking. him too much, but look at the books he wrote, The New Citizenship and The New World Order. Wow. That was never the heard of this guy. Social Service of the American Baptist Association. Dude, The New so World you Order. Talk about 
the development of the administrative state, social services is is a major part of that, right? And so, oh, yeah, here's another co- uh, connection that we see. All of these guys are involved in, you know, government social service or the creation of social services. Holy shit! And so yeah, that's never his heard book this guy's name, background. Samuel Zane Batten. Never yeah. once have I heard of this guy. And this dude no, either writes a I. book called The New World Order. Oh, I started laughing when I saw the names of his <laughs> books, and so I put one in the background here: the New Citizenship, or yeah. And it sounds like the new, new freedom, right? In the background. It sounds like the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it's the new everything, right? I think we found the word new in front of every important word to anybody interested in, you know, maintaining their freedom to speak and, you know, to think right. for themselves. We see the word new put in front of all of those. Republic, mm-hmm. nationalism, freedom, spirit, citizenship. Like it just right. goes on and on. And I stated in one of my earliest articles that these are the men that put new in the new world order. Absolutely. Yeah. And in new Testament, and I've said that to you, to you guys before, and it's so relevant here because this is especially what we're getting into here. Like, why do you think it's called that? I'm so, so tired of people not realizing in this larger grander community probably not the people watching here but but it just in general people that think that um you know the christianity that they've been handed is somehow saved from like untouched by the the the, the powers that be it's like dude these stories are yeah man a long time ago absolutely every rebellion's been written except for this one Fuck yeah, and you know, you guys, we're we're taking over. <laughs> I was doing, I was going down to rallies here during COVID, and a lot of people were telling me that I had to get right with God, or I was going to burn in hell. And I wish I would have known this information then, because I would have just said, "Hey, have you ever heard of dispensationalism? You ever heard of right. C.I. Schofield? Because here's where they, you know, co-opted your mind. If you're yeah, going to read literal, <laughs> you know, like I've spent so much time telling people that like their version of Jesus and their version of God comes directly from the church and the church is corrupt as fuck, you know, but like even worse than that, it comes from far less ancient things. <laughs> it comes yes. from all of these motherfuckers. And you can say modern. Hey, these come, these changes come from modern times and that right. that'll stop people in their tracks too. Just to know that this is, you know, less than a hundred years old. A lot of this. Exactly. So, Thomas Nixon Carver studying under Richard T. Ely and John Bates Clark at Johns Hopkins. Richard T. Ely is a very important guy to understand. He really sets uh, economics up in, in America and he's, he teaches the next generation of people. He's really a huge figure in the progressive movement. I just haven't Mm -hmm. been able to delve deep into him, but we've got some interesting stuff on him here. Uh, So him studying Carver studying under Eli and Clark, makes him a disciple of Nies and the German historical school. So Carver, the treasurer secretary of the American Economic Association. Ely, a world-renowned economist, founder and first secretary of the American Economic Association. So here we have the founder of the AEA, its first secretary. And then, you know, in the same group, we're seeing all kinds of people connected to that, members of AEA. Ely also just happens to be the founder of the Christian Social Union and wrote extensively on organized labor movements. 
his father a devout Presbyterian as well. Both Ely and Clark studying directly under Carl Nies at the University of Heidelberg. Ely also studying under Johann Caspar Bluntschli, the man who cre- created one of the first codes of international law and oh, war wow. and is a co-founder of the Institute of International Law. Bluntschli heavily influenced by Hegelian ethical social theory we see popularized in both Germany and the United States today. Wow. As soon as you see the word international, especially yeah. international law. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This That's is it. key to understand because they're moving us the whole, the whole way that they got us to change was through the material force of arms and guns and tanks and blowing each other up was the, was the problem. And then the people reacted and the solution was international law. Mm-hmm. rather than it's always the internationalists isn't it yeah and so that's actually what communism was a front for when when you at yeah. what was imposed it wasn't communism that we should have been worried about it was internationalism and you know Karl marx was at the first international and a key figure in shaping you know the ideologies coming out of there in the 1850s so, and he's a journalist. So I would say that Marx, before he's a communist, is really an international journalist. And he's pushing this, this move towards an international governing body of, of all of society. So Professor Ely was perhaps the leading spirit in the group, found generous support for his new historical school of economics among the clergy who, as we know, had joined the revolt against laissez-faire theory in which attitude... The association found its chief raison d'etre. So this is their whole purpose was to revolt against laissez-faire theory. Now this is mm. this supports my theory that it's not necessarily capitalism that we should throw out. I think here again we're getting a shifting of the goalposts, right? Because really they blamed laissez-faire for the the collapse in 1907 and then the Great Depression in the 20s. This is what they they fingered as the problem. Meanwhile, organization was going on all over the place and the monopolization. And, and so larger and larger companies were being created. And we can see the result today. There's no mon pa around. It's just big box like Home Depot, Staples, right? It, mm-hmm. it really takes away the competition. And that was and what when, they were attacking was our ability to compete. It's interesting too that you know whether you're religious or not, you can kind of see that uh, that happens with churches too. Because I have small churches in my town, and then you have the mega churches all over the yep. place. You have the stadiums, then you have the big yes. mega churches. You know, I've been to a couple. I have, uh, I had, well, I still have, uh, you know, evangelical relatives that live far away, and mm-hmm. I've been to one of their churches where it's all it's very huge. There's stadium seating, and it's right. It's very intense. I couldn't and do so it now. I was a much hold younger that man. Thought. <laughs> hold that thought too, Andy, because we're going to you know, substantiate what you just said here in a minute. Okay, perfect. So the expert, the social scientist in the middle emerges in much of Henderson's work as the arbiter of social life. That's from Social Science History, Volume 34, Number 3, The Pragmatic Sociology and the Public Sphere, The Case of Charles Richmond Henderson. So it's a biography or the story of his life. Mm-hmm. And there he is admitting the expert, the social scientist in the middle, emerging in much of Henderson's work as the arbiter of social life. Now Henderson's a professor of sociology at Chicago U, but he's also a, an ordained Baptist minister. Oh, how about that? Right? So there we go. 
he's introducing the scientific expert. Unbelievable. So he, Charles Richmond Henderson, closed citizens in industry with a note that churches like the great trusts were amalgamating and that Protestant ecumenical was beginning to echo Roman Catholicism, which he called an international trust of religious forces. See Holy that? shit. Oh my so you're, God. You're right and on. He and he compared Catholicism to it too. <laughs> yeah. So this is what they're uh, doing. They're creating a, a giant religious trust. Bingo. Just like they created trusts like Standard Oil, right? Mm-hmm. Same wow. thing, just in the religious aspect of our life, not, you know, um, business. So a social policy, they start using these words, implies and assumes a certain philosophy of life and a certain religious faith, right? When we think about mm -hmm. social policy, we are talking about social contracts. So what are they talking about here when they talk about a social policy implies and assumes a certain philosophy of life and a certain religious faith? Now let's take the religious faith aspect out of it and understand that as, you know, zeal or like how you can, re you can interpret uh, evangelism two different yes. ways you know uh so social policy here he's talking about our social contract oh this faith proves its worth and reasonableness by its works so here we are talking about our works it is living and it is prophetic and creative they're using the word living there to us who believe in a progressive social policy the word is not merely pushed forward by blind physical forces it moves onward toward aims clearly set before the human will and realized gradually by concerted labors directed by science. Will this and policy science. Is, this policy is root and branch ethical. It is morality organized, vivified, guided by growing knowledge and inspired by faith. So they're using ethical there. That's a direct connection to the ethical socialists. So that, that, that would be common quote, ground man. between the two. <sighs> that, right? that would be the common like, ground. Yes, it's perfect. It's, and it's yeah the ethical standpoint it's and it ties it all together yep so you can see some of the books on the right that henderson has written to prison reform he's actually the mm. president of the american prison association or something he's really running the show and we know where that leads we know we i've never done an episode on it personally but we all know the connection between like prison and like the hip-hop uh whole you know corporate or you know like controlled narrative of hip-hop and stuff like that kind of keeping mm -hmm. the prison cycle running and everything yeah. that whole thing is crazy if it's if it's legit you know i can't yeah. imagine and, it's not well so this is great that we're showing that they're involved in prison reform yeah because we're going to show you in in the law episodes how jeremy bentham the creator of the panopticon is really the source of a lot of the the modern day philosophy of law the predominant philosophy of law today is really based out of bentham's combining utility and the greater good mm -hmm. so wow that's as far as i want to go but it, this is why i find that once we get to the law part this is what i'm really excited about because i think this is really where it's going to cement in people's minds just how much uh influence obviously law has in controlling society it was something again that i didn't really think about like the origins of some of these religious aspects that we thought were you know thousands and thousands of years old aren't it's the kind of same thing 
Yeah, it's like find every way possible to control human beings, and this is how yep. they do it. Well, that's changing image as a man. That's what they were doing. That's what they've been doing <laughs> exactly. the whole time. Every aspect. They weren't even, they didn't care how ridiculous it sounded. You know, this is like the men who stare at goats. They were trying to pass through walls just, you know, by power of mind. And mm. I don't think it ever happened. They had, they said that it didn't. And I would, you know, believe them there. Yeah. But they they would go into all kinds of different ways to control people because they're, 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 you know, social engineers. They're psychopaths. They're clinicians. Oh, yeah. They have their bread. They were actually, uh, they were brought into the fold because of their disinterestedness or their ability not to really have a lot of care. Because when you're making social reform like this, you can't be bogged down in emotion. And, and so this is where the greater good comes from. Mm -hmm. That Yes. Okay. Some, some people may have a worse time here, but in general, the greater good is going to be served far better if we make these certain reforms. Right. Right. So we see that today too, the greater good. I mean, COVID was all about the greater good. Oh, absolutely. And so in late 19th century America, the new science of sociology suddenly found itself the handmaiden and ready instrument of a somewhat distinct strain of ideas, ideas which begin religious and to an extent liberally progressive were acceptable to the entrenched powers of university governors and presidents. We're seeing the combination of sociology, progressive-ism, right, into oh, yeah. universities, and it's being accepted because of, you know, the, um, the reasons for it. So oh, yeah. it is virtually impossible to extricate sociology and the social gospel in many instances. And to a large extent, sociology in America may be seen as an outgrowth of the social gospel. So they're almost synonymous with each other when we really start to get involved in understanding it. They're all basically the same thing. That's crazy. I mean, considering how, how many like liberal minded people are involved with sociology today, like right. imagine oh, yeah. how many of them even know where it all comes from. Yep. And I would say, how you know, many of them even, know about the Schofield Bible? You know, when they talk about these guys as fathers back in like the early 1800s and even the 1700s, that's how they talk too. Really? It's the same language is being used. Mm -hmm. So the fellowships wide, this is, um, I'm not sure what they're talking about here. The kingdom, the brotherhood of the kingdom, maybe the kingdom of the brotherhood. The fellowships mm -hmm. wide range of interests was well exemplified in the program for the conference of 1898 at which three series of papers were presented the prophets of israel as social leaders the rural population and the social movement trade unions in new york the social work of the church and a review of sydney and beatrice webb's industrial democracy ah okay so brandeis is over here bringing industrial democracy into reality through scientific management the establishment of minimum hours and minimum wage and walter Rauschenbusch and his people are studying the same book sydney and yeah. beatrice webb's industrial democracy sydney and beatrice webb the founders of fabianism these and actually beatrice webb when they i was reading a book not too long ago here about bentham or or um you know uh this ethical socialism and they trace it back to david hume Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, 
and that, so those are three giants in philosophical history but then they include as the in the modern rendition beatrice webb not sydney but beatrice webb so she's a uh, again she's an underappreciated historical figure she's very influential yeah extremely she was she was talking and hanging out with uh louis brandeis before she even married sydney <laughs> as uh, beatrice potter and she's inspiring uh, Louis Brandeis to make a lot of social changes. He's reading industrial democracy. He's reading the works of other Fabians and being deeply inspired by it. So no aspect of the thought of social gospelers as a whole more effectively describes them as children of their age than does the word progressive. Applied first to advancing theological views, progressive later became a political catchword representative of a particular reform philosophy popularized by Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. That the kingdom should be progressively realized by evolution indicates the close relation of social gospel thought to the intellectual and social ideology of the time. So there we go. Right, That's Walter Rauschenbusch and the Brotherhood of the Kingdom. Wow. So they create this Brotherhood of the Kingdom. And really what I see there is it's like promising it's like the promise of the utopian socialists it's just a thing in the future the future will be perfect and this is how it's going to be we're the technical scientific expert we know what we're doing right determinism combined yep. with positivism there's no time to ask any questions the wheel continues to roll just like today we, we we don't have time to ask whether global warming is actually you know valid we just keep moving on and more money comes out of our pockets to try to solve something that can never be solved we, we're not even sure if it's real right oh my God. we used to yeah, call it global yeah. warming. now they've shifted it right over to climate change and if you deny climate change you're you deny climate now that's a major step all right now we just deny whether this is real and you know taxing us more is going to solve it yeah or, but, or even simply that we have an impact on it you know Right. That's the other part. They Either they weaponize way. truth too. They weaponize uh -huh. truth to get us to get throw the baby out with the bathwater in yeah. so many different cases. Yeah. So yeah, this is unreal. So how it's all coming together. Theology for the social gospel, Walter Rauschenbusch. So again, from Walter Rauschenbusch and the Brotherhood of the Kingdom, but by all odds, the most important writings by members of the Brotherhood were those of Walter Rauschenbusch, who's Epochal book, Christianity and the Social Crisis, appearing in 1907, made its author at once the acknowledged leader of the American social Christianity and soon acquainted the Protestant world with the basic tenets for which the Brotherhood had long labored. So we're just making associations to socialism between, you know, between socialism and Christianity, mm -hmm. just to show you that this is very well known what they're doing. There's no debate as to, you know, the similarities between Christianity and socialism. They all knew it. And, you know, they just found ways to, to get along. Yeah. And they're all talking to each other. They're all and, yep. together. <laughs> and they're all denying that they're socialists. This goes, this goes to the inter allied conferences in 1918 too, when the credential card that was given to all the members that showed up there in the, when the league of nations was created in London, 1918, before the Paris peace conference, credentials were being handed out at the, the door and, People were arriving thinking they were showing up at the inter-allied labor conferences, but their credentials said the inter-allied labor and socialist conferences, and there was a big uproar over it. <laughs> 
So this is how they just sneak it in there. Yeah. Like the Patriot Act, you wake up in the morning and you got way less rights than you did when you went to bed. Right. And it's all over a fictitious, you know, possibly totally fabricated by our own leaders. Exactly. That puts us there. And so they practice dialectics, the Hegelian telling of history. This is what they all really embrace. It's unreal. So uh, Walter's son, Paul Arthur Rauschenbusch. So we're going to come to a conclusion here. We're going to show you where it is today. So okay. Walter's son, Paul Arthur Rauschenbusch, he would marry Louis D. Brandeis's daughter, Elizabeth, in 1925, like we said. And boxes of correspondence between the three, Brandeis, his daughter, and Walter's son, Paul, uh, at the Wisconsin Historical Society within the UW-Madison Digital Archives indicate quite clearly that the same interests in labor, social justice, and reform that stirred Louis in the first third of the 20th century also stirred his daughter and son-in-law. The husband and wife team of economics or economists, best known for their work with Harold Groves, developing and securing the passage of Wisconsin's unemployment compensation legislation, the first such legislation in the nation. Holy shit. So here's a picture of He's uh, this is him grooming his daughter and then his sure. daughter and for then sure. his daughter choosing a husband probably that was perfect yep. for this. You know, I don't know too much about well, it. Well, but... we know that they intermarry, right? When you look at you know the Darwins and uh the Wedgwoods and the Galtons, mm -hmm. they're you know, they've famously interbred between their families and they're marrying each other's cousins and all of these kinds of things well this is exactly what's going on here it's the same uh -huh. thing they're yeah. bringing in the Russian bush family just like we talked earlier about the brandeises being involved with the gold marks and the mm -hmm. wiles they're all you know uh associated to the to the brandeis family well same thing here with the Russian bushes they enter the brandeis family lineage yeah, she and looks so terrifying. She looks evil. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, and there's that ring. He looks man, like Margaret Mead. They all kind of yeah. look the same. These ladies. I'm surprised she actually has a man because a lot of times these women that are involved in all of this social activism don't have babies and are single. Right, because that's the model that they were going for. Yep. Oh, so man. Washington Post. We all know that that's totally CIA. It was created by the cia to begin with and so they're just doing a, a story on these two fantastic people that fell in love at the university of wisconsin while they were trying to save the world i had so, to laugh a couple of years back when washington post was being censored on twitter everyone was like yeah washington post is where it's at telling the truth or no I'm, am i fucking that up right. is it the new york post someone correct me i don't know yeah, so they do it all but, the time it's the same thing. They're all fucking yep. owned. <laughs> yep. Yep. So a rich collection of communication exists in those archives between Paul and Felix Frankfurter, Tom Corcoran, and Thomas H. Elliott, and other federal officials that shows an important involvement within Franklin Delano Roosevelt's brain trust. Brandeis and Frankfurter most influential here again, consulting and advising U.S. presidents in the completion of much of the work started under Woodrow Wilson. So here's wow. the second wave. We talked... I'm not sure if we've talked about um, how Felix Frankfurter as the professor of law at Harvard was taking the best and brightest of his students and sending them uh, for their first clerk work under Brandeis and 
uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And those guys turn into the major lawyers behind FDR's brain trust. So Tom Corcoran's involved there. Mm -hmm. uh, Dean Atchison might be another name that people are familiar with. They all are Harvard Law grad, Phi Beta Kappa II, the next generation. And, and a lot of what they started under Woodrow Wilson, they finished in the three terms of FDR. That's unreal. So here's another guy. The yeah, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. So he's taken the two S's out of his name, but he is directly related. He is the great-grandson of Louis Brandeis. And where is he today? Reverend. The Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch is president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance, an Baptist minister. Reverend Rauschenbusch is a longtime leader in the interfaith movement, working to protect an inclusive vision of religious freedom for people of all faiths and none. As the great-grandson of the first Jewish Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis and great-grandson of Baptist theologian Walter Rauschenbusch, a key figure in the social gospel movement, Reverend Rauschenbusch's commitment to interfaith advocacy comes in part from his own interfaith background. So he's the president of an institution he even looks kind of like Louis. He does. Yep. He's definitely got some of the, the lineage, his eyes and his, his jaw and his nose and everything. Yeah, it's very Louis. Hey, so yeah, that was well, very interesting to Louis's me. His daughter's uh, smile too. <laughs> and so he's uh, the Chautauqua Institute, the <gasps> Center for American Progress, the New American Foundation and the Aspen Institute. Jesus. And he's a, he's a, you know, he speaks on CNN, C CBS, ABC, all the mainstream. Okay, yeah. so there's where we've gotten to, and even their children are third generation lawyers doing the same thing. So, Jeez, yeah, we. This is why I say we are in an incredible place in history because now we can we can see the lineage going back into the 1700s and 1600s, and then we can see because we've got a hundred years or over that of hindsight, we can see the generations that have come after Brandeis and the fathers of the progressive movement and all of this radical social reform. You know, the, the reform we're seeing today is only bettered by the reform that we saw in this era, 1912 to 1920. Oh, it's unreal. Yeah, you look at that era and you present this to people. And the thing is, is if anybody wants to refute it, <laughs> They have to deny everything that's been happening for the past like 40, 50 years too. It's, it's unreal when you look at society, our modern Western culture through this lens, mm -hmm. every single piece of it adds up. You can point, once you understand this material that you're presenting, most of the 20th and 21st century make a lot more sense to me. Yeah. A lot of concepts like controlled opposition and uh, dialectics themselves make a lot more sense to me. Yeah. The counterculture's fuzziness to me, you know, the control of it through CIA and other means and other avenues, it's all so nonlinear warfare, you know? Mm -hmm. It yeah. just all adds you know, up. That was, you know, part of this research for me was just, how amazingly it all clicked everything together for me. And then, you know, over the years now, I've been able to just watch life unfold in front of me and it's never failed to confirm my thoughts when I see, you know, messages or narratives being passed through the mainstream. I mean, today, right now, people, you can, 
internet search this, there is a afoot a new Brandeis movement. Really? So this is all like, you know, like the World Economic Forum has its new generation of young leaders and same yes. with the Hegelians. There was young Hegelians of which Marx was a member. We're seeing the same thing today and they're called the Brandeisians, the new Brandeis movement. They're doing the same thing, social reform through, you know, getting their toe into the sentimental door of liberalism. Of course. Right? So when we when we talk about liberalism, this is what they say about all of their fathers back in, in Germany learning, even when they were learning during the revolutions, it was a liberal education that they got. Mm -hmm. But really what we're seeing is today's liberal is a progressive. We should definitely make sure that we're labeling them correct because, you know, I prefer to think of liberalism in the definition of classic liberalism, you know, a liberal, you know, uh, with its emphasis on freedom to speak and think and congregate and, you know, right. Progressives are not that it's move with us. And... Yeah. Sorry to cut you off there, Dwayne. No, it's okay. So yeah, it's not progressive whatsoever. That's a very different definition than what right, progressive exactly. is. You know? And so um, I had somebody ask me about the U S constitution and isn't it supposed to be a living document? Well, you know, there are certain things in that document that are never supposed to change, including your ability to speak and think for yourself. That's right. why that document was created. And I did reiterate to the viewer that, you know, that was the game plan from the beginning. So, you know, I, didn't, I, when I was younger, I didn't, there was no interest in learning American history. It wasn't taught in schools in any interesting way. Um, right. You'd have to really have a predisposition for it, you know, but yep. luckily I gained it later on. But one thing I do remember uh, was that there was um, an open or closed interpretation of the Constitution, and there were certain people fighting for and against that. I don't know any of the details. I only remember learning about that, and I think <laughs> it was Hamilton and Aaron Burr that opposed one another on that topic. And I, I don't know much else, but I figured I'd throw that out there for anybody that possibly knows more than I do about this. That, uh, and, you know, I believe those two did a showdown in the street, did they oh, not? Okay. Or <laughs> You're talking about Hamilton and Jefferson, I think. Maybe I'm, yes, maybe I am talking about now Jefferson. That's a famous, yeah. that's a famous uh, conflict right. of interests there. They both had different views of what America was supposed to look like in the future. This is the alleged well, yeah. One of them was the Constitution has been written. This is what what is meant by that, and that is that. And then the other, I mean, this is generalizing, but the other view was that, no, 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 this evolves with time. And to right. me, that's always yeah. been the, Ooh, okay. so the that evil be, part of it. You are, know, you saying that, that, are you saying, Andy, that that is the source of their conflict between Hamilton I, and Jefferson. It was that. I don't know. I'm not a historian by any means, but I mean, the fact that sense. we're discussing this stuff right now, it mm. just brings that to mind. And I'm going to, of course, go look into, it. I'm going to ask my dad about that too. Cause he's a, mm. he loves American history. Uh, mm. even though he doesn't ac accept my version of it most of the time, you know, mm. but this point about, open interpretation of the constitution versus a closed mm -hmm. that is such so just that method of argument mm -hmm. is so uh it's 
usual suspects, right? It's like exactly how they do things. It's this mm-hmm. negotiation of what the truth is rather mm-hmm. than plain truth. Right. It's always some sort of justification around it. And uh, I don't know which person was on which side. Uh, Jefferson, I'm right. assuming, was on more of a closed side, but I, I don't remember okay. who was. So who. This, this actually goes back to the Federalist Papers, too. Mm, okay. uh, and so this this is one area of history that we really need to straighten out because uh, all of these guys at the House of Truth and all of these progressives, they're um, Jeffersonian. They side okay. with Jefferson. I bet and he was more open-minded than right. But they they draw out Mount Rushmore on the dining room table at the House of Truth. And who's on the Mount on Mount Rushmore? This is important to understand. Jefferson, not Hamilton. Right. Yeah, dude. Holy shit. And Theodore Roosevelt's there. And yeah, Lincoln. Dude. Right? So yeah, the hero, quote unquote. I think what I see when I look at Mount Rushmore now is an ode to progressivism. Yeah, now they, that you that say that. Train, there's an ominous continuity going, through, you know, before Lincoln even, but, you know, the emancipation of the slave, what is that? But, you know, progressivism and the manifest destiny, I say this all the time, this is exactly what it is. Oh, yeah, you're right, dude. Now that I think about it, because I was trying to think of like excuses that mainstream academics give or would say for why those men were chosen for that mountain, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, oh, those excuses would just be aiding the 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 underlying propaganda of what they're trying to put across anyway so Mm -hmm. it wouldn't it doesn't even matter what the academic version of it is because the academic version is the stepping stone to get you to pay attention to these men and what they did in particular Mm -hmm. to get on them you know what i mean to help this progressive movement and aiding in this uh progress of success yeah and it's just like the progressives to put something up on the mountain and have the whole nation embrace it and honor it without knowing that they're actually just honoring progressivism that is so progressive and let's let's also note that just as we see with black lives matter and anything else these people touch they do it on the backs of the people they claim to want to up yep. you know uphold and and help uh yep. considering that mountain that they carved those presidents faces on is a highly contested situation when it comes to n- the native cultures that were living there and worshiping Absolutely. that mountain that's a that was like Mm-hmm. that's like the cherry on top for these people i'm sure was right. the absolute disgrace of the natives that yep. not to go off on a totally different tear but native cultures that remember an old way a yeah. very very old way that's connected yeah. to the enemy of our enemies right. for sure and the the owner of house of truth was the head of indian affairs under taft Oh, of course. I'm sure he was helping right. so much. And oh my Walter God. Walter Lippmann, who's considered the father of modern journalism. Journalism, yep. He coined the term neoliberalism in 1937 at the Walter Lippmann Colloquium, where he's hanging out with Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich von Hayek and all these economists. This is where they coined the term neoliberalism. So, you know, they're the fathers of progressivism, but they're also coining all of these other crazy terms like Cold War, stereotype, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at manufacturer that. of consent, right? So it's yeah. all coming out of the house of truth. And then 
Gutzen Borglum, the guy that creates Mount Rushmore, he is a House of Truth resident. He's hanging out there oh, with shit. all these guys. He's a super close friend with Roosevelt, and they're both high-level Masons. And actually, Borglum is uh, more influential in the Masonic circles than Roosevelt is. Jesus. And he helps bring over the 1913 Armory shows that starts that this whole uh, degeneration program of American ethics and you know morals from a from another angle you know that really sent shockwaves through america when they started bringing over all of these french artists that were painting you know radically um groundbreaking uh paintings right yeah so gutson borglum is the head of that he's really organizing that and which painters come over and which paintings come over and so you can see that it creates a total disturbance in america Dude, this is so crazy. Like, we could literally take any point, like, just like that. It immediately made me think of David McGowan's work on the '60s and Laurel Canyon mm-hmm. and all the controlled op situations in in hippie rock and stuff like that. It just you could mm-hmm. literally take any of these starting point situations that we're discussing on this series and mm-hmm. just echo it out through history and see yeah. all of the effects and all the different ops and all the different upgrades. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what's so great about this era. We've been we're over a hundred years, you know, removed from it. So it's had its chance to really just stretch it to its furthest elaborations. So this is why we have the internet, whereas people fifty years ago didn't. You know, a lot of the the literature wasn't even you know available to people. So we are in this little window in the history of humanity where we have been graced with the necessary information to overthrow what's happening. It's just, do we get, you know, a a mass consensus? Do we get, you know, uh, do we get this kind of truth and this real history go viral and spread across America and people start to understand the real true history? Because if that happens, we flip this thing. That's how close we are. I think people need to understand that we have found the information necessary to wake people up. It's just now we need to put them in front of air. We need to make sure that everybody is, you know, even those that, that, you know, know a lot of what we know, we need them paying better attention. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll see people sharing stuff about, you know, Taylor Swift. Or the Super Bowl. Doing why you need to be focused on our lives and what we're doing. She's a manager of society. She's an influential uh, influence leader. She's created. She's this a Brandesian two form or two step nation model, just like Oprah, just like, you know, everybody else, Brad Pitt, yeah. all of these um, social engineers, man, all of these entertainers that are asking you to fall for the argumentum ad vericundium or the argumentum ad auctoritatum. These are appeals to authority so they're setting you up for a logical fallacy. So if they're not giving you evidence that a Big Mac is something really good to eat, I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> they're just they're just being funded. You know, they're doing these things because they're getting paid a lot of money to do it. They're Absolutely. just totally compromised. So I cannot reiterate enough, and I, you know, it can never be overstated that this information really is the key. The progressive I really do is the new world order, you. man. I agree with you completely. Yeah. You see it. You're just like, wow. And so this is why you and I really wanted to just put it down and get it down however long it took to get it right. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be, you know, a 10 probably plus because this story needs to totally be unpacked. 
But this 10-part series is really going to give us a, a good foundation and an understanding. Man, if, if we can get a, a few thousand people to understand the, this in the way that I do and the way that you do and the way that a lot of people around us are, man, we can really just show people how it happened. And in, in, in some other in less direct ways, we really let a lot of people off the hook so that, you know, a lot of the reason why normies or, you know, people have resistance towards this true history and call us conspiracy theorists, all of these things, you know, um, I lost my train of thought. Well, you were saying how, you know, they kind of have this uh, negativity towards this entire viewpoint, right. you know? So if you can show them a sophisticated way and you, and, and just by showing them the history, even if they don't show it and they're like, Oh, that actually makes some sense. Or, you know, they lay their head on the pillow at night and think about it. And they're like, yeah, that does make a lot more sense than what these other conspiracy theorists are telling me, you know, this is, and they can look at the sources, you know, we're not that's, making any of this up. That's this is why where, we're bulletproof because yeah. we just get them to say it. And that's why I really like working with you on this um, because it, it relates in a way to my um, broader mission or viewpoint, if you will, which is mm -hmm. that, yeah, there's a fine line. There's like a little piece of truth within this alternative world. But uh, man, there's so much bullshit thrown in the way, you know, and uh I feel like one of I feel like my role here is to help facilitate that understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Just that there's so much more nonsense than you think there is. Just as spiritual people tend to attribute a lot more ego to the higher self than they think they are. You know, there's a lot more uh, lies that have been perpetrated onto the truth community then the mainstream has perpetrated on the world at large. I think that is actually a very important and controversial subject and point that will probably get more attention in years to come because right. I don't, I no longer see the quote unquote conspiracy theorists or quote unquote alternative media movement, um, being able to go around in a circle like it has for 60 mm -hmm. years anymore. Right. Uh, we barely had actual alternative media until 20 years ago, 10 years right. ago. So I hope I have high hope that in time, this kind of information is going to be able to reach people that it will matter to, you know, yeah. people that, that do appreciate empirical facts and logic and reason and won't be able to go through this information and continue to deny or yeah. continue to prop up the false narratives that they've been taught. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that this is the most eye-opening podcast ever that I, you know, but in a way it kind of should be mm -hmm. because this whole series is. Mm -hmm. And I think I'll say this and we'll end it that this series episode to episode is putting so much of my other episodes into context perfectly <laughs> if that good. makes any sense and i'd hop that's around good. to a lot of different topics but it that's doesn't really matter because it's all encapsulated under 
whatever the fuck this megalomaniac system that we are uncovering here yeah. is. So yeah. I really thank you for doing this with me mm. on my channel. And I appreciate yeah. your work, dude. Yeah, I wouldn't do it with anybody else, Andy. Amen. Appreciate you, man. Yep. And Appreciate thank it, you man. all for those who have been sticking with us and watching. We still have 13 people hanging nice. on. I think that's more than last time hanging on at this okay. this time. Thank you know, we had a, a good amount of people hanging out. Yeah. So we're getting... um. Get, it's getting out there. And I know that you are spreading the word far and wide and getting on yeah. other podcasts about this stuff and garnering attention for the information you're putting out. So it's really important. I appreciate Yeah, we that. had 125 on the missing link and they That's were there awesome. at the end of a three and a half hour podcast. So it's not about That's me. It, it's not about you. It's about the nope. information. That's how I look at this. Just like I farm to grow the vegetables, to put it in front of people and then get out of the way, you know, that's the true role I think that the farmer should have. It's the same here with, you know, forensic history. Yes, indeed. Allow people to empower themselves. I do not want to be an authority over anybody for any reason. So we go find the information. We put it together in the way that makes sense to us. And then we present it. And then you guys tell us what you think. Now, if, if you agree and you come to the same conclusions as I would expect you would, then disseminate it send it start talking to people this is a this is a real great way to not be laughed at the, the, these conversations yeah. silence the opposition trust me when you start talking sociological jurisprudence and scientific management you know it's bulletproof and yeah <laughs> yep and and people that were ready to call you a conspiracy theorists they can't really say that no they start wondering if they know things. Uh, they they start wondering if their historical credibility is as good as they always thought it was. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't wait yeah. to have some of these conversations with my father right. very carefully and happily right. <laughs> with yeah. a drink in our hand or something. <laughs> yeah. So next week, Andy, I think we're going to do Fabianism, but then the week after that is the two-parter. We'll see if we can get through both of those in the same week. I didn't set it up that way because it is a lot to talk about, a lot to take in. And the two-parter so, is the law, right? Is law. The philosophy okay. of, of law is an incredibly eye-opening thing that uh, up until now, we've just been sort of bringing you along as, you know, in step-by-step. Step, and then we're going to hit you with this sociological jurisprudence. And you're going to see the patterns through everything and, and really what is going on. You know, this is why we say social contract rather than you know, invisible prison. Right. Yeah. Or the prison exactly. planet. Right. Say, it's a contract. You agreed to it. You agreed yeah. to it every day. Yeah. And, and it's the matrix too. This is what I see, you know, when Morpheus talks Ooh, about I like paying that. it, feeling it when we pay our taxes or when we go to work or when we look out our window, the, everything he says in that speech is about our social contract and things that Brandeis brought into our world. <sighs> Holy shit, man. This is beautiful. So next week we talk about, you said Fabians, and yep. then we'll go the into ethical socialists, and then all of those guys come together in the in the the law aspect, and then we go and show the international and how they they created all of this on an international level. This is unbelievable, and I th I really I'm going to prop this series up, you know, all year long at yeah. this point. You know, this is going to be a ten week thing, but I'm going to yeah. push it 
repeatedly because it should be on a playlist eh? i'll put it yeah, on my probably, youtube yeah i'm gonna do the same thing i'll probably yeah, put we'll it on its own playlist. playlist yeah people like even, to binge watch so yeah. we'll just we'll get it available for them in that way i want to i want to make a whole page for it on on my website the deepshare.com and then i i <laughs> went there and i think i didn't pay my bill <laughs> so yeah. i don't have my website is not up right now oh, it, shit. i will definitely get it back up and running soon <laughs> that's a good reason to donate to the deep share right that's there. right the donate. website yeah. up and running people whether you do it here or you do it through um red circle you can do it there too redcircle.com which is my hosting site it's where i put out the podcast so you'll cool. see this on the podcast feed tomorrow um but anyway Dwayne, yep bulletproof pub.com 30 back there hell yeah man time to go to sleep but yep. uh i appreciate you man and i appreciate I all this you work too. you're doing appreciate all the people listening and watching yep thank you everybody. and yeah spread the fucking word and if you disagree right or if you have something to question yeah bring it to us bring it to Dwayne mm -hmm. bring it to me I'll bring it to Dwayne you know this is I prefer that kind of stuff because that's, that's an objection but it's really just looking for more information so I embrace those kinds of things when people come at me critically it gives me an opportunity to explain myself so anytime. I think that's the whole point this side of the argument will always answer questions we have the truth we'll always you know yeah exactly so it doesn't matter what the question needs to be Right. Well, you know, that's the whole confidence there that you can count on. So, all right, everybody, until next week, take it easy. Thank you. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, that's Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.